the colonies have long been spoiled from being allowed to do whatever they wish. I do not care if they resent our troops being there, King George shouted angrily, pounding the map and causing a couple of the lead soldiers to fall over. They will pay for the British troops stationed in America as well as their fair share of the war debt. It is the very least they can do after all the mother country has done for them. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. On today's episode, we'll hear Chapter 43 from The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, and... And we'll hear some pretty rough voices. Indeed, my pet, for it seems we've all been uh, bit by the bug, as it were. Yeah, we're all feeling a little bit under the weather. Aye, and the weather's not so great. Uh, right, Mosey? Uh, indeed. Uh, personally, I seem to be at roughly 63% of my usual vim and vigor. While I am at approximately 72% myself, mon ami. Well, I'm about, uh... Well, actually, uh, I didn't know there were going to be any math. Uh, besides, I always sound a bit rough. Rough, rough. Well, yes, that's true, but this time... Ah, uh, this time I'd be a wee bit sick, too. So, everyone, uh, please welcome your sick little hosts... Monsieur! Liz, Nigel, and Max. Hello. Bonjour. Cheerio and all that. Look, I know we don't all feel so hot. Uh, Actually, I do feel a tad warm. Uh, check my temp, would you, old boy? Well, sure, Nigel. Uh, well, you're right at 98.4. Oh, dear. Oh, dear me. Oh, dear me. I say, I'm, I'm burning up. Oh, dear. I, 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 know. I, I believe I'm becoming uh, uh, delirious. I, I say, oh, 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 mommy, mommy, mommy. Well, what's your temperature supposed to be? Well, monsieur, the normal temperature of the common American field mouse is indeed 98.42 degrees Fahrenheit. But, Les, I am a British mouse. Ah, bien sûr. Uh, monsieur announcer, can you switch it to Celsius? Oh, I don't know. I mean, we're in America. And here in America, we use the Fahrenheit. Just switch it, lad. Okay. Uh, Nigel? Uh, you're 36.9 degrees Celsius. Oh. I, well, I tell you, that's, uh, that's uh, spot on. <laughs> well, <laughs> indeed, I, I'm feeling much better already. Hmm. Apparently, the common British field mouse can suffer from acute hypochondria, no? You, you think I'm faking this? Well, Mosey, if the wee tiny little shoe fits. Uh, Nigel, I do believe you are sick, but... And I had just been given a very grave diagnosis. Yeah, you did overreact a little bit, Nigel. Hi, Mosey. Whereas I be as sick as a dog over here. Uh, Liz, is me nose warm and dry? Uh, let me see. Oh! Oui, it is too dry. Liz, your kitty tongue feels like sandpaper. Oh, pardon, I cannot help that. Well, plus you're spreading germs, Liz. Well, then uh, Max can just lick them off. Uh, we all know how clean a dog's tongue is supposed to be, you know? Uh, uh, right. Uh, I say, uh, where do you suppose we picked up this little virus? All I know is we were fine until announcer lad's friend were here over the weekend. Oh, you mean Seymour Swine? We? Oui. 
He did seem to have the sniffles, no? Indeed. Why, I'll bet that stuffed-up pug-nosed chap infected us with some nasty virus. Why, that pestilent porker. Ah, that sickly swine. That unhealthy hog. Okay, you made your point. Uh, listen, uh, I'll give Seymour a call, okay? And we'll find Uh, you've got a story to read. Uh, we'll call your sick piggy friend, then. Oui. Uh, read the next chapter, monsieur. Come on, chop, chop. Chapter 43. Soldiers, Smugglers, Sugar, and Stamps. London. Leo, no! King George shouted as he picked Al up from the overstuffed red velvet chair that sat next to a tea cart of sweet biscuits. The king put the fluffy orange cat on the ornate rug and plopped down in the chair himself. He reached over and picked up one of the delicious treats and took a bite. Al remained by his feet, looking up at him with his big, green, sad eyes. King George pointed the biscuit at Al and said, I told you to stay away from the sweeties, yet you disobeyed me. He took another bite and relished it, taunting Al. Because you ignored my command, you now will have none. I just can't help me, sweet tooth, Al meowed sadly. Your Majesty, it would appear your little British lion either does not realize you are king or chooses to disregard your sovereign authority, Lord Grenville quipped, standing with his hands folded in front of him. He was the new Prime Minister of Great Britain, already the second man the king had appointed to lead his cabinet after taking the throne. At the very start of his reign in 1760, King George III did as his mother instructed. He set out to be a king, and pick those who would do his bidding. He immediately appointed his tutor and father figure, Lord Bute, as royal advisor and leader of his cabinet. The king made it well known that Bute would be the power behind the throne. Bute had not only formed George's view of history, law, and politics since the king was 17 years old, but he quickly put the young king on a collision course with the world. Together, Lord Bute and King George began the irrational move to oust William Pitt, Great Britain's popular and effective prime minister who had led Britain to victory in the French and Indian War and in the world conflict known as the Seven Years' War. Bute and other advisors had convinced King George that William Pitt had the blackest of hearts. Pitt resigned in 1761 after clashing with Bute on how to end the war and King George immediately turned to Bute to form a new government. Bute oversaw the signing of the shaky Treaty of Paris to officially end the war with the French, but King George's mentor quickly failed at the task of governing. Bute became the most hated man on both sides of the Atlantic and only lasted 317 days as prime minister. Rumors circulated that Bute still remained in the shadows, advising the king despite George's next move in appointing a new prime minister, George Grenville. Grenville had a way of irritating King George, but the king had to put up with him for the time being. If Leo does not know I am king by now, he never will, King George told Lord Grenville. He's been with me for as long as I can remember. His tendency to get into places he shouldn't be and touching food he shouldn't touch has always been part of his mischievous charm. 
The king leaned over and scratched Al under the chin with a chuckle. <laughs> I can never stay mad at him for long. Speaking of getting into places he shouldn't be, I regret to inform your majesty that the 1763 Proclamation Act forbidding the colonists from getting into places where they shouldn't be has not been well received, Grenville relayed. What? What? King George exclaimed with his quirky favorite phrase. He tossed the rest of the biscuit onto the floor and shot up from his chair, marching over to the map lying on the table. Al's face lit up, and he looked both ways before he snatched up the sweet biscuit and ran under a settee to finish it off. The king pulled his finger across the map, noting the line west of the Allegheny Mountains, beyond which the colonists were no longer allowed to settle. After the blood, years, and expense it took to defeat the French and gain all this territory, I am not about to allow the colonists to ignite more conflicts with the savage Indians. With our troops in place, Britain will control orderly westward movement, and it will be done at a slow enough pace to keep the colonists near the Atlantic coast and dependent on our imported British goods. Granville nodded in agreement and pointed to the map. Indeed, your majesty, but those colonists living on the frontier in Virginia and the Ohio regions especially resent such restrictions. They wish to pursue new land and participate in the lucrative fur trade. They say they do not need our troops to protect them from Indian threats. He picked up one of the lead soldiers sitting on the map and held it up for emphasis. Stationing 10,000 British troops in the colonies to protect these new lands comes at a cost, and that cost is on top of the massive debt we have from the war, which has risen from 73 million pounds to nearly 130 million pounds. This lady is just full of good news, Al thought, shaking his head and licking his chops. Out of the corner of his eye, he thought he saw something scurry up the writing desk he slowly waddled over to investigate. King George crossed his arms over his chest and scowled with a pouting lower lip as he stared at the lead soldiers on the map. What is the cost to keep our soldiers in the colonies? Maintaining an army of 10,000 costs 220,000 pounds per year, reported Grenville. The colonies have long been spoiled from being allowed to do whatever they wish. I do not care if they resent our troops being there. King George shouted angrily, pounding the map and causing a couple of the lead soldiers to fall over. They will pay for the British troops stationed in America as well as their fair share of the war debt. It is the very least they can do after all the mother country has done for them. Parliament wholeheartedly agrees, Your Majesty. I have several ideas of how to get the colonies to pay their fair share, Grenville replied, seeing Al slink across the room. Just as your Leo has a sweet tooth, so do the colonies, especially those in the north. They also sneakily get their hands on sugar. Explain, King George prompted, watching Al's tail whipping back and forth next to the writing desk. The colonists have ignored the Molasses Act for decades, choosing to smuggle in sugar and molasses from other countries besides Britain to avoid paying the taxes, Grenville explained, 
gripping a tight fist. Our customs officials too often turn a blind eye, but I propose we now come down hard on these smugglers. Colonial juries usually find their smuggler friends innocent, so we must take these guilty criminals to vice-admiralty courts in Nova Scotia instead of jury trials in the colonial courts. Make the smugglers prove their innocence without their friends there to defend them. Plus, we can clamp down on smugglers by giving our officers full permission to enter their homes and seize their smuggled goods without first going to court. King George raised his eyebrows. These are firm measures, but I like what I hear. The colonists need to be taught obedience to the crown. I agree, and we shall teach the colonies to respect the authority of the crown by taxing them without their consent. Grenville continued with a firm nod. What if we also passed a sugar act? We could lower the taxes on molasses to convince colonists to pay the tax instead of smuggling. We could also restrict colonial exports of items like lumber to Britain alone. That would immediately help to start raising money. But we need to make sure the colonists cannot issue their own money and only use British coin. Therefore, I propose we pass a currency act as well. Mm, these measures will place the colonies securely under our thumb as we control the colonial sweet tooth and raise money, King George answered, nodding slowly. This has promise, but I wonder if these acts alone will be enough to pay for our soldiers and the American war debt. Grenville frowned and crossed his arms. I agree, Your Majesty. We need something more. Something that touches not just smugglers and merchants, but every colonist in America. So every citizen pays his fair share. The Sugar Act is more for regulating trade as an external tax. We need a deeper tax. An internal tax. Suddenly, Al jumped up onto the writing desk, knocking over an inkwell. He was chasing a bug around the desk. The pest ran under a copy of Gentleman's Magazine. "'I'll get you, beastie!' he meowed. "'Leo, no!' King George snapped, stomping his foot and clapping his hands together loudly. Startled, Al scurried off the desk, sending the newspaper flying onto the floor. He took off running out of the room before he got into any more trouble. "'Allow me, Your Majesty,' Grenville said as he walked over to pick up the newspaper. When he gathered the paper into his hands, he slowly stood and turned to face the king, wearing a broad smile. He held up the gentleman's magazine. I have another idea for raising money that will indeed touch every colonist. We've used it quite successfully here in Britain, and I have no doubt it will work in the colonies as well. King George walked over and took the newspaper in hand, with a frown. Al's inked paw print graced the front page. And what is that? Grenville lifted his chin with pleasure over his idea, pointing to Al's paw prints. A stomp tux. Mount Brilliant, November 1764. 
of all the nerve, Nigel ranted, tugging on his whiskers as he paced back and forth. Quinville actually proposed that the colonial agents agree in advance to the Stamp Act before they know what's in it. How preposterous! How idiotic! Who in their right mind would ever suggest such a thing? Just who does this cheeky Grenville think he is? Steady, Mousy, Clarie told the little mouse. Grenville didn't even know all that would be in the Stamp Act when he first met with the colonial agents. He tried to get them to blindly agree to the proposed act to establish a pattern where Parliament could proceed with taxes without consulting the colonies. Clarie had just arrived from London to give Liz and Nigel a full report on all that had transpired as a result of the passage of the Sugar Act and now the pending Stamp Act. The colonies were sending petitions and pamphlets and had their agents in London meeting with Grenville to avoid the passage of the Stamp Act in a few months. So let me see if I understand this Stamp Act correctly, Liz recounted. There will be a tax on 55 categories of printed items used in public, such as newspapers, pamphlets, wills, playing cards, and dice. Stamps ranging from a halfpenny to ten pounds must be purchased from a British official and placed on these items. This tax will naturally hit printers, lawyers, ministers, and merchants the hardest. But just think how it will affect the rest of the people. Quel dommage! A marriage will not be valid without a stamp on the marriage license. Nor will any poor dead chap be officially dead without that horrid stamp affixed to his death certificate, Nigel ranted. This is madness. Parliament is interfering with the colonists by taxing them directly and without their consent, Liz noted. That's right, Liz. The stamp tax is a major part of the Stamp Act, but there will be two other items slipped into it as well, Clarie explained. A new clause will be inserted into the Mutiny Act that says Britain can station however many troops it needs here in the colonies. And the Quartering Act will require the colonists to locate and provide quarters for those British troops. Colonists also must provide the soldiers with supplies like candles, bedding, drink, soap, etc., the King and Parliament are ignoring the tradition of self-government for the colonies, reducing them to the status of women and slaves who have no voice in government, Nigel lamented, putting one paw on top of the other as if building an imaginary fire. My beloved homeland simply does not realize they are placing one log of trouble upon another here in America. Clarie nodded. And all it takes is the right spark to set that fire ablaze. This lawyer James Otis in Boston seems to have a smart head on his shoulders, Liz reported as she scanned some of the writings Clarie had brought with her. He makes it clear that the colonies cannot be taxed without their consent. No taxation without representation. But of course, this is not only logical, but is the constitutional right of Englishmen, no? Yes, and as predicted, he and the people of Boston, such as Samuel Adams, have been protesting the Sugar Act, and now this proposed Stamp Act, Clary agreed. 
Virginia did not respond as urgently to the Sugar Act, but the Cummings Stamp Act is a different story, and Patrick Henry will soon hear all about it from the Burgesses in Williamsburg. We, oui. Colonel Nathaniel West Dandridge, hired Patrick to present his case at Littlepage over an election dispute, Liz said. He is to leave for Williamsburg soon. Nigel, you'll be happy to know that Benjamin Franklin has gone to London and will now join the colonial agents to try to talk some sense into Grenville and Parliament, Clary informed the little mouse. That is good news, my dear, but I thought I was to accompany Franklin to London, Nigel asked in alarm, as if he had missed a date on the calendar. Should I make haste and away across the pond? You will, Nigel, but later. Mr. Franklin will remain in London for quite some time, Clary replied. Al has things well in hand, or paw, as it were. You need to remain here with Liz and Patrick Henry for the time being. You two still have the next part of the fiddle's riddle to solve. Very well. We are both still quite perplexed as to what the riddle could mean, Nigel told her, tapping a finger on his chin and looking skyward. A voice in the house makes five words... Too short. A house. Patrick is building a house in Louisa County, Liz offered excitedly. After John Shelton sold Hanover Tavern last month, Patrick's family needed to move. But ever since Patrick became the people's hero after the Parsons Cause case, he has more clients than he can handle, no? With Patrick's successful law practice, he is finally able to afford to build a house. Right. Patrick sold his Pine Slash farm and acquired the 1,700 acres of land his father promised him as a wedding gift, called Roundabout Plantation, Nigel added. Just yesterday, our promising young lawyer bought lumber to build a house on the land, and I learned that his closest neighbor will be none other than Johnson from the Parsons Cause. We. Oui. This is why Patrick brought his family here to stay at Mount Brilliant while the house is being built. Liz's eyes were lit up with excitement. Clary, is this part of the fiddle's riddle? Yes and no, Clary answered with a grin. It does have to do with the house in Louisa County, but that is not the house in the riddle. Did you pick up any clues during the Parsons Cause celebration at the tavern with Patrick's new neighbor? Nigel cleared his throat and adjusted his spectacles. We did overhear Johnson telling Patrick that he would be glad to help him gain a Burgess assembly seat in Louisa County. But of course this requires him to own land in Louisa. Liz suddenly stopped and locked eyes with Nigel. House of Burgesses! Liz and Nigel exclaimed at the same time. That's it! Clarice said. Boom! So this means that Mon Henry will have a voice in the House of Burgesses, cheered Liz happily. But there is currently not an open seat in Louisa County. Clarice smiled. All in good time. Before he dives into deep waters to speak in front of the most powerful men in the largest colony in America, he first needs to get his feet wet with a small group of them in Williamsburg. And he'll gain a single ally that he will need in the future. I see, Liz glanced up to see Cato circling above them. Nigel, tell Cato you two will be flying to accompany Mont Henry to Williamsburg.
I shall need a full report on everything that happens there. The black cat got up and slowly sauntered off. I will make sure Miss P's shoes are ready for this trip. Williamsburg Miss P shook her head as Patrick Henry walked toward the imposing capital where the Virginia House of Burgesses was in session. He was dressed in well-worn, coarse brown clothes that should have been given away long ago. As usual, his shoes were dirty from their long trip, and several hairs were sticking out from his unpowdered brown wig. He was oblivious to the looks he received from the refined, well-dressed gentleman he passed. "'Will that boy ever learn to take his appearance seriously?' Miss P. asked Nigel. "'Heaven help him if he wants to join those Burgesses looking like something the cat dragged in.' "'Have faith, my dear,' Nigel answered cheerfully. He sat on the post where Miss P. was tied. Cato had dropped him off, and he waited with Miss P. until it was time to follow Patrick inside. The little mouse gave the horse a fond pat. "'Perhaps he will be inspired by the splendid array of tidy, colorful clothes he shall see today as he dips his toes into these new waters.' "'I wouldn't count on it,' Miss P. replied with a doubting snort. "'He's a fish out of water.' Nigel chuckled and scurried away down the dusty Duke of Gloucester Street after Patrick. He slipped under the feet of the polished and powerful Tidewater elite and into the hallowed halls of the capital. He stayed out of sight, but kept an eye on Patrick, who walked around in awe of the grandeur of the two-story H-shaped building. The downstairs housed the ornate general courtroom on the west side, and the impressive long chamber for the Burgesses on the east side. Upstairs was the governor's council chamber and committee meeting rooms, separated by a bridge that symbolically joined the royal and colonial branches of Virginia. Patrick stood at the doorway to the elegant, dark-paneled chamber for the House of Burgesses, which was patterned after the House of Commons in London. Rows of long benches covered with green velvet cushions ran the length of both sides of the elegant room. The benches curved to meet at the tall, ornate chair where sat Speaker John Robinson in his black robe and powdered wig to oversee the representatives. Between the facing benches on the floor sat the clerk's table, piled with parliamentary law documents and the silver mace that represented the power of the House. The air itself was thick with the authority of the Tidewater aristocracy that had long held the political power of Virginia. Those belonging to the families of the Randolphs, Carters, Beverleys, Lees, Harrisons, Burwells, and Blairs held leadership positions in the House and the important subcommittees. But the most powerful man in the room was Speaker John Robinson, who had held the prestigious chair for 30 years. All it took was a look, a nod, or carefully chosen words for the round-faced speaker to keep the representatives in line with his unchallenged authority. Whatever he agreed to in the discussion of the representatives was passed, and whatever he opposed was dropped. Burgesses were expected to work their way up through Virginia politics, serving at the county level before they attempted to hold the prestigious position of Burgess. Newly elected Burgesses needed to earn the right to be heard by the Assembly. They were expected to remain respectfully quiet while the old guard controlled the discussions. 
And although those from the backwoods and upper Piedmont regions of Virginia technically held voices equal to those of the Tidewater elite, they knew that their opinions were not highly regarded or even welcomed. Patrick listened intently as the representatives discussed the resolutions that had been drafted to send to the King, the House of Lords, and the House of Commons in response to the coming Stamp Act. He frowned as he heard the men discussing the need to tone down the harshness of their words so they would not give any offense whatsoever to the king. Tone them down? Their words aren't harsh enough, Patrick thought to himself, as he gazed up at the eyes of royalty watching the proceedings. As in Hanover Courthouse, reminders of royal authority kept watch over the Burgesses. Life-size paintings of the kings and queens of England hung on the walls over his majesty's servants, their eyes seeming to follow the burgesses who moved about the room. The business of the house moved on to other matters, and after a while the assembly ceased discussions in order to break out into their various subcommittees. As they filed out of the room and walked up the wide staircase to their respective meeting rooms, the clerk notified Patrick to follow him. He respectfully bowed and swallowed hard as he climbed the stairs. He was about to enter a room with the most powerful men of Virginia. Nigel followed along and slipped in the room where the Committee of Privileges and Elections would hear Patrick present the case of Colonel Nathaniel West Dandridge and a dispute over the recent election for the House of Burgess's seat in Hanover County. Dandridge accused a man named Littlepage of using gifts, bribes, and swilling the planters with bumbo, serving too much rum punch, in order to buy votes and win the election. There sat Chairman Richard Bland and members Peyton Randolph, George Wythe, Richard Henry Lee, Edmund Pendleton, and George Johnston. Nigel cringed as he saw their expressions when Patrick Henry entered the room. They looked at the disheveled backwoods attorney and cast glances at one another as if a mistake had been made for such a man to stand in their presence and take up their valuable time. Only George Wythe maintained a slight grin as he looked at Patrick's attire, shaking his head and muttering under his breath, "'Just wait, gentlemen.' Wythe remembered judging Patrick too quickly when he last came to Williamsburg for his law license. He was eager to see if the backwoods lawyer had studied to improve his knowledge, even if he hadn't improved his attire. Patrick began in the same way as he now did with every jury in front of whom he argued a case. The method that had served him well in the Parsons' cause, he now used deliberately when arguing a case. He started off slowly, as if he were unsure of himself, lowering the expectations of his listeners. While his skeptical audience listened, Patrick Henry studied their reactions and read them like a book. Once he assessed his audience, his voice rose and his eyes gleamed until they were spellbound by his delivery of the facts through convincing arguments. Using humor or dramatic, perfectly timed pauses, Patrick kept his audience hanging on every word with his powerful voice. By the time Patrick finished presenting his case, the most powerful men in the colony of Virginia were speechless, and George Wythe and Nigel sat grinning from ear to ear. Mount Brilliant He was magnificent, 
Nigel exclaimed, after he and Cato landed in the field next to Liz and Ms. P, following their return from Williamsburg. C'est bon! Then he won the case for Monsieur Dandridge? Liz asked expectantly. I'm afraid not, no, Nigel answered as he preened his whiskers. There simply was not enough evidence to sway the Burgesses, but, if truth be told, those gentlemen themselves have been guilty of winning elections in the same fashion. So perhaps they could not bring themselves to punish another Burgess for swilling the planters with Bumbo. I think those shabby clothes made Patrick's case melt like a snowman in July, Miss P. interjected with a frown. Nigel gave a jolly chuckle. <laughs> it is true that Patrick did not impress the esteemed gentleman at first, but he soon squelched their unspoken negative thoughts about his appearance. They were spellbound by Patrick's delivery, and while he did not win the case for Dandridge, he left an extremely positive impression they shall not soon forget. That George Johnston fellow made it a point to compliment Patrick's case. Cato stretched his wings. Most importantly, Patrick was in Williamsburg at the perfect time to hear all the news and rumblings about the proposed Stamp Act. You should have seen the city. It was packed with humans, and that's all anyone talked about. I sat in the trees all over town, listening to the people below. Nigel wiped off a smudge from his spectacles. Indeed, old boy, I do believe this trip set the stage for Patrick's involvement in the House of Burgesses, whenever that may be. He was none too pleased to hear how timidly the Burgesses expressed their concerns to King George and Parliament. When they meet again in the spring, they hope to have a response to their resolutions from London, and I know Patrick will be eager to hear that response. In the meantime, we need to get Mon Henry elected as a Burgess, Liz added. But somehow, a Burgess seat must open up in Louisa County. Cato's eyes widened excitedly. I might know of a somehow. I overheard Patrick as he walked to the Raleigh Tavern with Thomas Johnson and his brother William, Cato relayed. It sounded as if William is ready to quit his seat as a Burgess. Those Johnson brothers are tired of the uppity Tidewater elites controlling the house and not listening to them. But William said he won't step down unless he finds another political position in which to serve in Louisa. Liz's eyes brightened. Thomas and William are both from Louisa County? C'est ça! If William gives up his seat, Patrick can be elected to take his place. We must find some other job for William. Parliament Building, London, February 6th, 1765. Gilliman and Clary sat above in the Strangers' Gallery of the House of Commons with other spectators, listening to Parliament's discussion over George Grenville's proposed Stamp Act. The House of Commons had gone over the details, and there was no debate over the specific items in the Act. The debate rather focused on the principle and wisdom about passing such an Act. Did the colonies have virtual representation in Parliament, as some claimed? Or did Parliament have the right to tax the colonies however they chose? How they voted on this move against the colonies could forever change the colonies' relationship with the mother country. <laughs> if they only knew the real strangers that sat here, 
Gilliman whispered with a soft chuckle, as he looked around the most prestigious chamber of the mightiest power on earth. This gallery was well-named in our case. Clarice smiled and whispered back, It doesn't get any stranger than a mountain goat and a lamb sitting in the House of Commons. She and Gilliman had taken their refined human forms as usual, but this time Clarice was a man so as not to cause a stir with a woman sitting in Parliament. Below them was the chamber that had served as the model for the Virginia House of Burgesses, with rows of benches facing each other, the speaker's chair at the head, and the clerk's table in the center. It's been eleven months since Grenville first introduced this bill. Clarice looked around at Virginia agents Edward Montague and Benjamin Franklin, and other colonial agents sitting nearby, who were visibly upset at what was about to happen. He gave these colonial agents time to suggest an alternative for raising money in the colonies, but didn't give them the information they needed to find a solution. Grenville didn't intend for the colonies to come up with another solution. He simply wanted to give the appearance that he did, Gilliman explained, watching Benjamin Franklin sitting there with a frown as he gripped his hands on top of his cane. Now that the petitions are pouring in from Virginia and the other colonies to stop the passage of the Stamp Act, Grenville has exactly what he wanted to push this bill through. Grenville refuses to allow those petitions to be read and discussed in the House of Commons, except for the convenient sentiment that Grenville is sharing with them, that the colonies say that Parliament does not have the authority to tax them. Upon hearing this, these members now see the passage of the Stamp Act as more a matter of putting the colonies in their place than just raising money. Although not all of them feel that way, Clarice suggested, Lord Cornwallis surprisingly is one of the members who opposes the Stamp Act. Gilliman leaned over and gazed down at the 27-year-old Earl Charles Cornwallis, made a lord after his father's death three years before. He had served bravely in the Seven Years' War, and as they watched him fight in the Battle of Minden, Gilliman told Al that he would someday be assigned to Cornwallis. Yes, what a paradox that is, given what is to come. But there is another who also stands with the colonies, having fought side by side with them in the French and Indian War. Gilliman pointed to a genteel-looking Irishman with a distorting wound on his face. Colonel Isaac Barr received a bullet in his right cheek that left him blind in that eye. He understands the passion Americans have to fight for their land and their liberty. The words he says today will forever be stamped on American history. The tax intended is odious to all your colonies and the tremble at it, Isaac Barr exclaimed, holding one hand on his hip and pointing a finger at the gentleman he argued against, Charles Townsend. He thinks part of the regulation passed last year very wise in preventing them from getting the commodities of foreign countries. We know not, however, the real effect of this. We are the mother country, but let us be cautious not to get the name of stepmother. A low murmuring rippled through the assembly as Barr took his seat. Charles Townsend rose to his feet, spread his arms wide, and spoke in a scornful tone. And now will these Americans, children planted by our care, 
nourished up by our indulgence until they are grown to a degree of strength and opulence, unprotected by our arms, will they now grudge to contribute their might to relieve us from the heavy weight of that burden which we lie under? Hear, hear, voices echoed as the majority of the members nodded in agreement. Isaac Barr again rose from his seat in a huff. They planted by your care? No. Your oppressions planted them in America. They fled from your tyranny to then uncultivated and unhospitable country, he shouted, casting a hand toward the Atlantic. They nourished up by your indulgence. They grew by your neglect of them. He paused and looked around the chamber and slowly pointed a finger around the room. As soon as ye begun to care about them, that care was exercised in sending persons to rule over them, in one department and another, who were, perhaps, the deputies of deputies to some member of this house, sent to spy out their liberty, to misrepresent their actions, and to prey upon them. Men whose behaviour, on many occasions, has caused the blood of those sons of liberty to recoil within them. Gilliman and Clary exchanged glances as those words hung in the air over Parliament, while Barr paused for a moment. No one spoke a word. They protected by your arms, Barr continued. They have nobly taken up arms in your defense, have exerted a valor amidst their constant and laborious industry for the defense of a country whose frontier, while drenched in blood, its interior parts have yielded all its little savings to your reward. He stopped and held a hand up to his eye where the bullet had taken his vision when he fought alongside the Americans in the French and Indian War. The people, I believe, are as truly loyal as any subjects the king has, but a people jealous of their liberties. Believe me, remember I this day told you so, admonished Barr, as he looked around the chamber. That same spirit of freedom which actuated that people at first will accompany them still. He took his seat and received nods of respect from the few fellow members who stood with him to oppose the Stamp Act. Sons of Liberty, Gilliman repeated softly, Barr has just unknowingly named the movement that will come against this Stamp Act, a movement the likes of which these pompous members of Parliament have never seen. But that movement first needs a push to set it in motion, Clarice said with a knowing look to Gilliman. The Sons of Liberty will first need a voice to sound the alarm and move them to action, Gilliman answered, and once that voice speaks, nothing will stop the ball of the revolution from rolling through the colonies and all the way to London, right through the middle of this chamber. I do believe our friend Gilliman may be a bit of a prophet, what? Hmm, we shall soon see. Aye, if we ever get to feeling better then. Hey, another lad! I got your big friend on the phone here. Well, fine. I'll put him on speakerphone. Uh, Seymour, can you hear me? 
loud and clear. Did you get us all sick, Piggy? Max, where are your manners? Oh, uh, sorry, lass. Uh, uh, greetings, Seymour Swine. Hey, I'm Emmy, Emmy, Max. Uh, just one question, then, lad. What? Did you get us all sick, Piggy? Oh, much better, Max. Indeed, Monsieur Swine. Uh, when you visited last weekend, did you bring something with you? I uh, brought my uh, luggage. I believe you know what she's referring to, old boy. Yeah, Seymour, were you contagious when you came to visit? Well, I didn't realize it at the time, but uh, yes, I had these sniffles, but I didn't think it was transmittable. Now, hold on, old chap. Being a pig, I must ask you, uh, surely you didn't have the swine flu? Oh, and, and, no, and uh, don't call me Shirley. Then what have you given us? Well, I got the sn snuffles ch chasing truffles. Snuffles chasing truffles? And do truffles have ridges? No, those are ruffles, Max. Oh, I love truffles. And I like ruffles, but let's get back to the point. How did you get sick? Uh, well, you try sticking your nose in the ground and see if you don't pick up a few j j j j j bacteria. I say, so you've contracted some sort of contagious uh, snout infection? Uh, Precise, uh, pre yes. Well, no wonder I got the worst of it. I got the biggest snout around here. Uh, no argument here. Well, okay, so thanks for clearing that up, Seymour. And I hope you're feeling better. If, 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 uh, much obliged. And you should all feel be, be better in a few days. It's not the flu. It's, j j it's just an infection. You'll feel so blue. But don't need an injection. Uh, lad? Does that be the only song he knows? It certainly seems that way, doesn't it? Uh, so, uh, we all have a snout infection. Uh, I say, old boy, then what is the prescribed remedy? Well, uh, simply a, a spoonful of sugar. Hmm, well, that is known in some circles to help the medicine go down, the medicine go down, the medicine go down. Hi, but it don't be the medicine. Oh, country, uh, oh, country, uh, not so fast. Sugar is all I've taken, and I'm completely, completely, totally recovered. Why, of course. Brilliant. You see, the old boy is a big ham, right? And what is the best way to cure a ham? Uh, sugar cured. Indeed. So, if you all eat a little sugar, you'll all be, you'll all be, you'll be better. Well, thanks, Seymour, and uh, learn a new song, okay? We will do. So long. Uh, bye bye Well, at least the remedy be quick and easy, then. And rather delicious, I must say. Yeah, it's always nice to have a quick fix like that, isn't it? Ah, uh, but some things take a lot more time and thought. Right, Liz? Oui, monsieur. Uh, like the writing of this incredible story we bring each week. So, in today's Jenny's Corner, we will ask our author friend, Jenny Cody, how she can plan her writing so far out in advance. Huh? What do you say, Miss Jenny? Eh? Well, you know, I have mapped out books that I'm going to write way into the future, but really it's just two big chunks of history that I know I'm going to be covering. And of course, the most foreseeable future is the Revolution series. And right now, <laughs> there's five books outlined in the series. Of course, I started with one, and it grew to two, and then three, and then four, and the five when I started saying that I needed to throw a lot more into these books than I was planning. So that's one way that happens. But I also 
and passionate about the World War II saga of history. And so when I finish the epic saga on the American Revolution, I will be writing and focusing on C.S. Lewis and World War II. That's the other era of time that I am really passionate about. And I've studied D-Day extensively. I've been to Normandy about nine times, and I just can't get enough of that era of history. So in thinking and knowing that I'm going to be covering those things way out in advance, it helps me to set up plot lines now that I can weave through. And I find really cool things that will connect what I'm writing right now to that moment in time. And so that's a really fun thing to do. The other thing in thinking far out is things I would love to circle back to in the Bible. And you might notice that in the Bible-based books, I'll have the animals mention that they were with David. Oh, and you remember how cranky the Israelites were with Moses and so forth. So I drop little hints and winks that the animals were there because, of course, they were kind of going chronologically. But I kind of put a place marker, if you will, that, uh, Lord willing, I would love to circle back around and do some of those stories that I didn't get to cover in the first six biblical books, whether it's Ruth, Esther, David, Jonah. And these might not be full big books on those Bible characters, but I was thinking about doing something about like the lost files of the Epic Order of the Seven. And maybe it'd be a compilation of a lot of shorter snippets of Bible stories. And I could also do that for history. So that's kind of how I map things out. It's always been, what are the stories that I gravitate to that I'm so passionate about telling? And then, of course, the ones that God tells me to write. It's a lot of fun, though, knowing where you're going. (laughs) Hi, lass. I always like going better when I know where I'm going. I say, that was profound, Max. Thanks, Mosey. It were nothing. Well, (laughs) almost nothing. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, we all need to get some rest and uh, some more sugar. (laughs) Uh, So, until next time, au revoir. Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.